Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We've been making our way through Luke's gospel. If you don't have a Bible, most of you probably do or your phone, but we have a whole rack of Bibles back here. No one will look at you if you go grab one, okay? But if you don't have a Bible open, you might be a little confused because that's where we're going to center our time. The remaining minutes that we're gathered together is going to be in God's Word, and we're in Luke chapter 8. If you are to turn on the news this evening or this week, it would be full of people who are in some sort of trouble. In fact, there's, that's really what makes news news these days. From a horrific bombing in Baghdad to the firing of an executive in Seattle to the disputes and riots in the streets of Seattle to the suffering in all parts of the world, our, our news mostly consists of bad stuff, not good. And trouble seems to be the common lot of humanity. One actress who already was having a hard year found out in one day that she was losing her television show and that her husband was leaving her, and she responded, I know the Lord won't send me more trouble than I thought, than I have the strength to bear, but I do wish he hadn't have quite such a good opinion of me. (laughs) Do you know the feeling? Some people deny that life has difficulties and maintain that the stereotype for the Christian faith is denying that problems exist. Some even say that you can't have a negative confession. Just keep your head up. Just keep thinking positive. And whether that comes from the Christian scientist Mary Baker Eddy or a charismatic word of faith teacher, this is false teaching. We can appreciate their optimism, but they're not realistic. And yet there are other people that are very aware of life's problems, but they believe there is no answer, there's no deliverance, there's no hope, there's no end of the trials in our lives. And this is what the gloomy materialists or depressing existentialists think. But their hopelessness is also false teaching. We can appreciate their ability to understand and acknowledge that life has difficulties, but they're not being realistic either. And as Christians, we know that life has problems, has trials, but we also know that it has solutions. So what do we do in times of trouble? Where do we go when we are suffering? Who will deliver us from our trials? As we come back to Luke chapter 8, we're going to finish, Lord willing. We find two people with similar problems, and yet Jesus answers in different ways. So here's the main idea. Here's the the main thing to think through and to understand about this passage here this morning. When when Jesus' power meets with human faith, sickness and death is conquered. When Jesus' power meets with human faith, sickness and death is conquered. So I'm going to read through the passage as a whole, verses eight, or excuse me, chapter eight, verses forty through fifty-six, and then we'll we'll dive in. Verse forty. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was also ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent her, all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she'll be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the end of Luke 8. This is where we've been the last few weeks. The chapter begins, if you remember, with Jesus teaching about the importance of his word. and How we hear the word of God is important. I said that a few weeks ago. I said, those who do not hear and do not respond to the word of God fail the test of faith. The faith that unites us to Christ obeys what he says in his word. And then from Lear, Luke gave us two overwhelming stories to showcase Jesus' power. His power over nature in verses 22 through 25, and his power over demons, verses 26 through 39. And this morning, we'll see his power over sickness and his power over death as the chapter ends. And in this chapter, Jesus is really just flexing his power. He's teaching us who he is and why he came to earth. And remember, the question that really is the center of this chapter comes from the disciples' mouth in verse 25. Who is this man? And it's answered emphatically later by the demon's mouth, right? Jesus, son of the most high God. His power as God will be displayed this morning as he welcomed back into town of Galilee by the crowd. And we'll see two more instances that are clear of his power. It's significant because Luke is is transitioning now in chapter 9 with the 12 being sent out to serve. And by the end of chapter 9, Jesus, it'll say, will set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is a breaking point here. And at the end of chapter 9, we will see this, Lord willing, he's headed for the cross, is what Luke is saying. There's much in this book. We're only one-third through. But Jesus makes this turn here at the end of 9, and it's a pivot in the story. And it brings us to the significance why, why Luke set out to write this in the first place. It's really going to hammer home. If you remember the reason why he wrote this in chapter 1, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. He wants you to have certainty about who Jesus is, why Jesus came. So this morning, Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 8. We'll look at the last two displays of Jesus' power. And so I have two points this morning. They should be on the screen. They were also emailed out to you in the, in the bulletin. First one, not lost in the crowd, not lost in the crowd. This is the longer point of the two if you're taking notes. And then the second point, an only child sleeping. So a few things as before we dive in here. A few things to understand before we, we, we look at this. We need to understand the background of the laws of uncleanness for Jews. In Israel, if you came in contact with someone with a skin disease, especially leprosy, or came in contact with someone with a discharge, or especially uh, you came in contact with someone who would touch the dead body, Uh, even if someone else had, if you came in contact, you became ceremonial unclean. The people were unclean themselves, but you would also become unclean. In fact, it was required in the book of Numbers, and we'll look at it here in a little bit, that, that if you came in contact with someone who was unclean, you yourself then had to be removed from the camp. You could not travel in the camp of God's people until you had gone through the the purification. 
That law of uncleanness is the background of this story that we're going to read in Luke chapter 8. It is also, by the way, the background of the story that we looked at in Luke chapter 5, we already looked at. The second thing to notice is the different ways in which people respond to Jesus. If you remember from last week, if you were here or you watched the service, Jesus removes the demons from the man and places them in the herd of pigs, remember? And it goes down the valley and they die. And what's the people's response to what Jesus does? Because the man's healed and he's in his right mind, he's clothed, he's talking with Jesus. And what is the, the people's response? Jesus, you need to leave. They want him out. He had ruined their economy. He had taken away their 401k. Jesus has to leave because now I'm destitute. And then we see in this chapter the, the response of the crowd. The crowd welcomes him, says in verse 40. And in verse 41, we'll see the ruler of synagogue imploring Jesus to come. And in verse 42, the crowd's so big to see Jesus that it presses in around him. And then in verse 53, the crowd is there. Jesus and he goes to awake the little girl. And the crowd's response then is they laugh at Jesus. Jesus, he's, she's dead. So each, each, each one of these responses are, are significant to notice. And why do you think that Luke keeps drawing our attention to the way that people react to Jesus? Because Luke knows that the way you respond to Jesus is the difference between life and death. And so he's very interested and how people respond to Jesus. And friends, he wants you to be interested in that too. And how you respond to Jesus. So let's look at my first point here. Not lost in the crowd. As I said already, the people across the lake desperately want Jesus to leave. And the crowd in Galilee anxiously awaits for his return. So we come to verse 40 and Jesus comes. And, and, it, and we read, as soon as he, he gets there... He's greeted by a crucial need. Jairus, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, approaches Jesus, and we'll look at that story in more detail in the second point. But Jesus essentially agrees to go. He goes, he wants to go with Jairus to heal his daughter, but as soon as he turns the corner to head that way, he's, he's, he's faced with a crowd, and people are pressing in around him. And Jesus is in the middle of this mayhem, and a, and a woman, Luke says, that has a discharge of blood for 12 years comes up from behind and touches the, the fringe, the, da the tassels of Jesus' garment, and she's instantly healed. And Luke says that Jesus knows that power had left him. And there's a lot to unpack there. There's kind of four things I want you to see. The first thing that hit me this week was the issue of time. If you noticed, J uh, Jairus' daughter is 12. And how long had the woman suffered from the discharge? 12 years. Twelve years of joy and delight for this man and his wife with their little girl. I'm sure he could remember each birthday they celebrated. Each year was momentous, breaking way to another year of potential in this young girl's life. But now his 12-year-old was laying sick on the brink of death. She's as good as dead if Jesus doesn't reach her. And yet for those same 12 years, this woman lived in despair embarrassment and pain, separated. She had tried everything in those 12 years. Luke says that she had spent all her living on physicians and she could not be healed by anyone. I think this is significant. For 12 years, Jairus and his wife celebrated their little girl. But for the same exact 12 years, this woman lived a tormented life. 
Two different people, two different experiences. I, I think we need to realize this because you sit here this morning and life has happened a certain way for you, but someone just six feet away, life has gone a drastically different way than yours. Your last year might have gone really well and your future is bright, but just to see it over, someone has been through misery the last year looking for relief. Your last week was great. But in this room, someone came this morning just barely hanging on. You and I are not God, so we don't understand the burden that others carry with them this morning. We need to be more gracious with one another since we don't know the burdens that others are carrying. And we need to pay uh, special attention on how quickly things can change. And this is a warning for arrogance. One day, Jairus has a healthy daughter. The next, she's about to die. One day, this woman is tormented by pain and suffering and shame. And the next, she's healed. We need to pay attention and recognize that time is in the hands of God. And things can change quickly. I also want you to notice the issue of uncleanness. The shame of the woman was that she was ceremonially unclean. I mentioned earlier about the passage in Numbers. If you can quickly turn with me to Numbers chapter 5, it's the fourth book in your Bible. Numbers chapter 5, just four verses I want you to see. You can hold your place there in Luke 8. We'll come back to it. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Just give you a little insight. If you take notes in your Bible, mark that in Luke 8, Numbers 5, because when you come back to this in your Bible reading, it'll kind of help you understand the significance. Did you notice those three categories of people that, that it says in Numbers 5? They're sent out of the camp, the lepers, those with the discharge and someone that's come in contact with the dead. God's word says they're defiled. They're ceremonially unclean. They cannot be in the camp. And this is to show God's people a number of things. It wasn't to be cruel. It shows them how sin defiles. Some have grown comfortable with sin. You live in sin continually partaking in sin. You've developed your life around your sin. But friends, sin defiles. And so God taught them how sin separates us. Not only from God, in this instance it separates us from others. They were unclean. They couldn't come to worship with God's people. They, they couldn't come to the temple, the tabernacle. Being unclean separated you from the things that mattered most in your life. And her discharge of blood had cut her off from life. She was outside of the camp. Her issue was most likely a condition that would be called today abnormal uterine bleeding. And the doctors of that time couldn't do anything to stop her bleeding. And, and Luke says that she had spent all of her, all of the money she had to find a cure. 
And so when we come to this woman, she's drained physically, emotionally, and financially. Her only hope was Jesus. But how would she get close? She's unclean. She shouldn't have been there. That's why she didn't come up to Jesus openly, but she sneaks up in the crowd trying not to be noticed. That's why she was embarrassed to admit that it was her who touched him. She didn't want to touch Jesus. She didn't even want to touch his garment. She just wanted to touch his tassel, Luke says. She had reached the very bottom. Have you ever reached the very bottom with absolutely nowhere to go? You spend everything to dig yourself out of the hole that you're in. You've lost friends and jobs and family and hope. And you're at the very bottom. And you feel unclean and unwanted. And perhaps that's you this morning and you came because you have nowhere else to go. And this is your last stop. You've run out of options. Friend, you're in the right place with the right people. Because every Christian that's seated here this morning has been where you are right now. Perhaps differently, but as Christians, we've all reached the bottom in life. We're all unclean. To be at the bottom, to understand that we're unclean means we know that our only hope is Jesus Christ. And every Christian has reached that level because the only way to be saved is to realize that Jesus is the only way for salvation. There can be no other competition. And friends, if you've never reached the bottom, you've never realized that our own hope is Jesus, then you're not a Christian because you haven't fully seen your need for Jesus. But you came to the right place this morning. Maybe that's your last stop, the last hope, and you're just barely hanging on. And here's the gospel that saves, friends. That God in his holiness cannot be around those that are unholy, and all of humanity is unholy. We're unclean, unable to remove the stain of sin that we carry. But Jesus came to take our sin, our uncleanness, and to give us new life, to make us clean. And we need to turn to, to God in faith believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for your uncleanness, and believe that God raised him from the dead three days later. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, and you'll be saved. If this is you, friend, I want to encourage you to come find me afterwards. I want to talk. I want to encourage you. This is the woman in the story. A smoldering wick of faith that will be fanned into a flame by the power of Jesus. Years of agony and shame will be reversed in a moment with a brief touch of Jesus. She had to go to Jesus, but she had some baggage. Another thing to notice is the shame of this woman. It says in verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Jesus knows he knows the power has gone out from him, which means that he also is also conscious of the power working through him. But for her, her worst nightmare had come true. 
Jesus knew what had happened, and she would have to speak. And she's filled with shame and overwhelming embarrassment. She, she knew she shouldn't be out there in the crowd, let alone touching someone, especially Jesus. And now he knows, and she's going to be found out. I'm sure she just wanted to crawl under a rock. What would Jesus do? The thoughts I'm sure going through her mind. Would he be angry with her? Would he be frustrated now when he's unclean? From her vantage point, I mean, as for a normal human being, being touched by a woman who had a discharge would make them unclean. This would stop his plans to go heal this little girl. So now is the father going to be upset with her? I mean, everyone's surrounding her. The crowd is pressing in. Can you imagine the, the fear welling up inside of her? She's a picture of shame. She's a picture of us. You know, shame is a weight vest. Some slide it on every morning to begin their work, to begin their day. They can't leave the house until they put this vest of shame on. And life becomes survival, not progress. And shame is rude. And by this I mean it's always talking to you loudly and intrusively and repetitively and unforgivingly. And shame accuses. Shame lays the blame on you. Shame won't let you have peace or forgiveness. Shame wants to continue to press you down. My my friend and a pastor, Paul Gilbert, writes, shame preaches an anti-gospel. It tells us we're inferior or inadequate or dishonored or disgusting. Other people have normal families, but not us. That's why we're unclean or repulsive or worthless or filthy and hopeless. Shame has a natural affinity with self-protection and unbelief. It hides from others, feels undeserving of anything good, and believes that it will contaminate whatever it comes in contact with. But friends, you need to listen to this. Shame loses its power when it's exposed to the bright rays of the gospel. The gospel overrules shame. Because the gospel speaks words of reality, of promise and hope. Words that equip us to battle the accusations of shame. Shame is a story that we tell ourselves when we believe that our only hope is ourselves. But the gospel says you are a child of God. The story of shame says that your sins are too great, that you're too unclean, that you're too unworthy. But the gospel says that all of our sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. Shame tells you that you're a bad parent. You can't hack it, that you should have never had kids. Shame says that you're not gifted in anything, that you should just give up. Shame says that your attempt at marriage has been horrible and you should end things now. Shame screams at you that you're to blame, that it's your fault, that there's no way out. Shame wants to destroy, but the gospel builds up. 
The gospel says you are sin heavy and mistake prone, but with Jesus as your redeemer, you are made brand new. Shame says there's no hope for you, but the gospel says because of Jesus Christ, God has paved a way brimming with hope and freedom and peace. Shame wants to rewrite your story. It wants to redefine your identity. It wants to give you a new little paper name tag. But the gospel tells the truth about who you are, permanently rebranding you with Christ's perfect name on you. And so you can lay aside all the false narratives that you've been believing and read how God thinks of you from his word. And God says that you are his possession, his child, his beloved. The Bible says that we are adopted into God's family, justified freely by his grace, purchased by his blood, purified by his blood, redeemed by his blood, cleansed by his blood, and sanctified by his blood. And Jesus won't let shame have the last word. And Jesus won't let her shame have the last word. And he turns to ask, to draw her out, who touched me? And he exposes the shame that's been ruling this woman's heart. And it's beautiful. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And in verse 48, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The amazing thing about this story, as I picture it in my mind, is that from that moment, Jesus face to face with this woman, there seemed to be no one else there but the two of them. Can you imagine with me? You've seen enough movies, I'm sure. The scene is set, the two of them there at the center, and the, and the camera zooms in, and, and, and everyone else has faded away. It's just her and Jesus. And Jesus speaks face to face with this woman. And in that moment, she was the only person in the world. She was poor, unimportant, unwanted, with trouble that made her unclean. And yet this unwanted one stands before the king and he gives all of himself to her. We're so quick to attach labels to people and treat them according to their perceived importance in this world. But to Jesus, a person has none of these labels. To Jesus, they're simply a human soul that has a need. And love never thinks of people in terms of human importance. And we should say emphatically that there's no little people in the kingdom of God. And she's instantly healed. The healing happens because she has faith, not because she has enough faith. This is significant. Many believe that it's the amount of faith that brings healing and salvation. And you might think, I have to get more faith, I have to have more. But that's not what Jesus says. Daughter, your faith has made you well. There's no magic number here. Only belief in the spiritual action and power of the Almighty God. 
and he calls her daughter. Might not find this significant, I do at least. This is the only time, the only story in the Gospels where Jesus uses that term. Jesus is establishing the relationship he has with her. I'm sure she was actually older than him, but he calls her daughter. This is more evidence that it's not a strong faith that saves, but a true faith. It is proof that the most beaten up, beat down, mustard side sees faith, tattered and tiny, receives, receives the eternal fullness of the glorious riches of Jesus Christ. Your faith doesn't need to be big, friend. It only needs to be real. And it needs to be in Jesus. This woman isn't lost in the crowd. She found the one that she was looking for, and she became new. So this transitions to the second point here, an only child sleeping. Coming back to the story here that we started off in the first few verses, Jairus was in charge of the synagogue. He's the one responsible for the ordered public worship. He has a high position. I love how the, the significance between this of the one of the high position and one of the low position, and Jesus ministers to both of them. And Jairus had the respect of the people. No doubt he was well-to-do for that time. He had climbed the ladder of earthly ambition, but he was also a man who could swallow his pride and ask for help. He's also a man with a stubborn faith. It can be easy to think, and you can find yourself slipping into this idea that we can just handle life all by ourselves. But the way to find the miracles of grace from God is to swallow our pride and to humbly confess our need for him. His girl will die if Jesus doesn't get there. And so Luke says he comes falling at Jesus' feet. He implored him to come to his house. But just as we saw earlier in the the chapter, Jesus was delayed. uh, Earlier in the passage, the delay of Jesus is going to bring more drama to the story. I can only imagine as a father, thinking of this father, the anxiety and worry that he's experiencing at this time. The woman had a chronic condition, but the little girl had an acute condition. Jesus chooses to stop on the way to talk with this woman who had been healed. You can imagine it might not make much sense to the father. 20 years ago, on the I-5 Ship Canal Bridge in Seattle, a suicidal woman stood on the bridge for three hours ready to jump. It happened around 6.30 a.m. The situation created a huge traffic jam. Many people in the car were caught that day in a delay. And shockingly, they began to curse at the woman screaming at her to jump so they could get to work. After three hours, they got their wish. She did. But she survived. 160 feet into the water. Many residents later sent flowers and cards to her in the hospital, apologized for what had happened. But some of the angry drivers phoned the local newspaper and blamed the woman for choosing a less traveled place to end her life. Why did she have to choose their route? 
Friends, people with desperate needs seldom intersect our lives at convenient times. The bleeding of this woman upset the plans for Jairus, and Jesus let it happen. In fact, it's worse than that. Put it into our time frame now. This is malpractice. If these two people were brought into the ER and he treated the woman first before the girl and the girl died, Jesus would be deemed reckless. He would be sued. This little girl needs help now. But as we saw last week, the tough pill to swallow sometimes is knowing that God will not be hurried. Jesus stands and talks to the woman who was healed. And then it says in verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Can you imagine the father at this point? How would you respond? What would be racing through your heart when you hear those words? Why? Why did you stop to heal her? Why did you stop to talk with her? Why didn't you come when I asked? All she needs is the touch of your power to heal, and now she's dead. She's gone. Jairus is a respected man. I'm sure maybe those thoughts came through his mind, but he speaks none of this to Jesus. There's no ill whatsoever he speaks. Jesus speaks to him. Verse 50, hearing this, he answered him, do not fear, only believe and she'll be well. Friends, fear really is the opposite of faith. In essence, Jesus is saying to Jairus, trust me, look at me, be patient. There's no need to hurry. Come with me, follow me. He's not making his faith a condition for resurrecting the daughter, but was encouraging and reassuring him to trust him. And I have some groundbreaking news for you, friends. God will not wear a watch. He always knows what time it is. And God will not align his calendar with us. He will not make his plans subservient to our plans. We will not be able to twist God's arm to do our will instead of his. God will not be hurried. And his grace rarely operates according to our schedule. When he says to him, do not fear, only believe, he's looking over his head, piercing into our souls to remind us of what he just did in a boat earlier in the chapter. Remembering how God calmed the storm. Remember how he showed us that his grace and love are compatible as we go through storms. And now we need to know that his grace and love are compatible when there are delays. It's not, uh, it's not this, I will not be hurried even though I love you. It's this, I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And if you try to impose your schedule and your timing on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me. God will not be hurried simply because he loves us. His love is not dedicated to our clock and to our schedule. And when they arrive at the house, there's mourners that have already been assembled. 
They're weeping because she's dead. And Jesus says, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laugh at him. Knowing that she's dead. They know a dead child when they see one. And Jesus doesn't respond to the mockery. He does nothing to dispel their their skepticism. He continues with his plans. And the parallel accounts of the story in Matthew and Mark make it clear that Jesus understands that she's dead. She's not just mostly dead. She's really dead. And so why does Jesus make a reference to her being asleep? Well, the answer is in what he does next. He sits down in the bed next to her and he speaks to her. Verse 54, by taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. In the Greek, it really is literally little girl. I think a better word, one that you use if you have a little girl, it's honey or sweetie. I've lost count how many times I've used that word for my girls. And the second word he uses is the word arise. I've also lost count how many times I've said that to my kids. (laughs) But picture this, it's a solemn scene. It's the quietness of death. The low murmur of weeping from the parents as Jesus kneels down on the bedside. But for him, it's not a funeral. Go ahead and read the Gospels and find where Jesus preaches at a funeral. Because every time he's at a funeral, they come back to life. And Jesus takes her by the hand and says, Sweetie, it's time to get up. And she does. Jesus facing death, the most unstoppable, relentless enemy of the human race. And he holds such power and compassion that he holds the hand of this child and gently wakes her to life. Sweetie, it's time to get up. Just like earlier when Jesus made the storm stop with the word, he instantly makes death stop here. The girl has died, but because Jesus is Lord, God in the flesh, sovereign over life and death, the Alpha and Omega, first and last, the sustainer over everything, he speaks life to her like it's time to get up for school and to get breakfast. Sweetie, it's time to get up. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Verse 55, and her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that you should give her something to eat. And her parents were amazed. I would say so. This is not what... Jairus asked for when he initially came. He hoped for a healing and instead he received a resurrection of his daughter. Jesus doesn't always answer the way we think he will. Friends, she would die again one day. Just like the man in Nain that we read earlier would die just like Lazarus that I read earlier in the service, would die again. But there is a better resurrection to come. 
Every resurrection in the Bible is a picture of that moment, that final keeping of the promise of conversion, sanctification, and glorification. The future resurrection. When we're not raised into our perishable bodies, but raised, changed, incorruptible, heavenly powered, glory driven, that resurrection is coming, friends. And every Sunday we gather is Resurrection Sunday where we remember what Christ has done for us. And we read about it and we sing about it on purpose. In fact, we sang about it earlier in the service. For centuries, Christians have asked the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? There's a reason why we chose that song. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. That was the first question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Because death is our common end. Unless Jesus comes to get us first, we will all die. And the only way for you to find comfort in life is to know how you can face death. And the only way to have hope is to trust the one who died to take the curse of death and who crushed the power of death by his resurrection. Friends, Jesus came to take our shame. He came to take away our uncleanness. He came to give us new life. And he came to give a resurrection to come, that we would rise again. And so we'll sing as we end, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him in his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. And we recognize that you are the author of every day of history and each day of our lives. Father, help us to wait for you in trust and reliance. And give us confidence for each day of waiting that you call us to. And deliver us from the evil one and his plans against us, his plans ultimately against you. We ask that you would grow our trust in you and train our hearts on you now and forever. We thank you that we can gather together as a church and that we can listen to your word and sing your praise. And it's in Christ's name we ask all of this. Amen.